Let's uh, start with just a brief word of prayer. Our Father, as we, as we now ponder the, the majesty of your grace and the magnitude of the gifts you have given us, I pray you'll give us the ears to hear, eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever noticed that uh, glory is sort of a theme around here? Someone walking through those doors for the first time, one of the first things they'll see is it says, expect the glory in large letters over here and receive the glory over here. And I appreciate Dorman and Jana, the way they kind of keep that theme of glory in the forefront of our minds so often. Every few months, this church hosts a meeting. People come from all over this region, and we call it a glory exchange. And how many times have you heard Dorman get up right here, and before he starts preaching, what does he say? Glory, glory, yes. So glory is a recurring theme, very important theme for us. But even so, I'll confess to you this morning that getting a grasp on the true meaning of the word glory has been a challenge for me. Do you feel the same way? It's, uh, it's used a lot of different ways in Scripture. Um, I've come across a variety of good-sounding, and I think good, definitions, but then you should be able to take a definition of a word and plug it back in where that word is used in Scripture, and it should fit. But what I've found with glory is many of the definitions I've heard, when I try to go back and plug them in, it's like it's not quite there. Well, what I've finally concluded is glory is such a big concept in the Bible that it takes more than one definition to get our, fully get our arms around it. We all kind of have a, an intuitive feel for when God in the Scripture, we see Him manifest Himself in some way, either in a vision or uh, in an actual physical way. We see the word glory used a lot in Scripture to describe that. When we see His brightness that's so bright, it's blinding to human physical eyes, the glory of God. Uh, on the day that Jesus was born, the morning that Jesus was born, the angels appeared to the shepherds in the glory of the Lord, shone round about them. So we do have a good sense, I think, of that use of the word glory. Uh, Jesus used the word glory to describe Solomon. He was talking about, consider the lilies of the field. Remember that? How, how beautiful they are. But they said, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as beautifully as those flowers. So we can take those, any of those definitions and try to plug them into expect, receive the glory. Am I to expect shining, shininess? You know, here in this life, uh, you can see the struggle. Well, during this message, I want to share with you a definition of glory that I have just recently come across in my studies, and it is revolutionizing my walk with the Lord. It's rev it's, uh, so many scriptures are popping into focus that had been kind of vague. So I want to share it with you this morning, and I hope that you might be willing to try it on in your own scripture reading where you find the word glory and see what you think. 
But before we go there this morning, I'd like to share a sentence. One sentence out of this little book. It's, it's entitled, The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. I'm sure many of you are familiar with Dr. Tozer. He's gone on to be with the Lord now. But this sentence is the very first sentence of the very first chapter in this book. So given that it's the first sentence in his book, I think we can safely conclude he thought this was really important. This is what he wrote. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me read that again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Well, I bought this book when I was 23 years old. I had moved away from home, living near Washington, D.C. And uh, even at that young age of 23, it makes me feel old when I see how yellow these pages are, <laughs> but even at the young age of 23, I double underlined that sentence. I knew there was something really significant about that. Well, 37 years have gone by, and I may just now be beginning to grasp the importance of what Dr. Tozer said in that sentence. So I'd like for us to spend a few minutes thinking about what comes into our minds when we think about God. I'm going to present two different versions of the God story uh, to you this morning. And what I mean by that is two different versions of what co people commonly believe about God. So you'll hear things you might agree with and disagree with in both of these versions. But what I would ask you to do is please listen carefully to the two versions. See which one you consider to be closer to what the Bible says. And then see which one maybe is closer to what you believe deep in your heart. I'm going to start, for those that might listen to this on a recording, I'm getting a, a chair, and I'm going to place it on the left side of the platform. One chair, hope everyone can see that. What I'd like for you to do is to picture this is God before anything was created. No heavens and earth, no humans, not even any angelic beings. Let me ask you a question about this God. Does this God love? There's no one to love. Does it make sense to even talk about love if there's no one to love? Does this God give? Well, that doesn't make sense either. To whom would he give? anything. So, some, and, and really, why would that God even bother to create anything or anyone? Now, you may have heard some people say, well, God was lonely, and that's why he created humans. But to say that God is lonely means that he is lacking something in himself, that he's missing something, that he's not fully God. So I think we can safely say, no, God was never lonely. He never will be lonely. That is not what caused God to create anything. 
Is that God approachable? We don't know. No one was there to approach him. Well, there are variations to this story of God, of of course, but the basic facts go something like this. God created everything that exists, including the first two humans, Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that Adam and Eve sinned and messed everything up. God got angry with them, but we do see his love beginning to show because instead of just killing Adam and Eve and starting over with two new human beings, he devises a plan. He comes up with a plan which will satisfy his demand for justice and at the same time show everyone that he is a loving God. In the fullness of time, God sends his son, Jesus, to earth to die for the sins of Adam and Eve as well as for all the sins of their descendants that ever uh, were committed. And then Jesus Jesus lived the life that Adam and Eve should have lived, that you and I should have lived, and then he's killed. As a result, God's anger and his demand for justice are satisfied, and he can go back to loving humans again without the obstacle of sin being in the way. Oh, we still sin, yes, but, uh, and according to some people, whenever we do sin, we fall completely out of fellowship with God. Not necessarily lose salvation, some say that, but fall out of fellowship. But the sins are still covered under the blood, and so if we'll just confess each and every sin, then we can be back in fellowship with God. If this is the view that one clings to, they might be heard to say something like this, well, just a few more weary days, and then we'll be in heaven, and there will be no more sin, and all will be well. In the meantime, God can have a partial relationship with us from a distance. But we all are looking forward to that great day when we get past the judgment day, And we find an out-of-spot place in heaven where we can just be at peace for all eternity. Does that sound anywhere close to anything you've ever heard? You know, uh, God created. Man messed up. If man hadn't messed up, Jesus wouldn't have had to come. But since man sinned, uh, as one person said it, Uh, Jesus took a a 33-year contract with God the Father, came to earth on that contract. As soon as he finished, contract was over, back up to heaven. All that was done. So we're genuinely grateful for what Jesus, and I'm not trying to minimize that at all. And I think you'll see some accurate facts in that story I just told. And maybe I used language in some places that was a little bit overemphasize the negative too much, but I am trying to make a point. But at its core, that is a story that many people believe today about God. Well, with this perspective in mind, I'd like for us to look at some of the scriptures from the New Testament that use the word glory, and let's see how we might interpret them. Now, let me say also, I found dozens Uh, literally dozens of scriptures that I wanted to use, but I narrowed it down to four. I think these four make the point. Also, I'm going to be reading out of the New American Standard. Eric, (laughs) 
he's waving his hand back there. Um, the New American Standard is very precise, and one thing I like about it, it tends to be consistent. For example, when there's the Greek word glory, the New American Standard tends to be consistent in translating it as glory. Other translations, for whatever artistic reason they might have, or trying to be clear, we may lose that word glory uh, from the Greek. The first verse is Romans 3.23. A lot of you can probably quote that. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, if you're like me, I get that all have sinned part. Oh, since childhood, I've gotten (laughs) that all have sinned part. What was less clear, though, was what does it mean to fall short of God's glory? I must, as a child, I must have just assumed that meant that I didn't quite work hard enough to achieve some level that God had in mind for me. And so I, uh, I failed. The next verse is Romans 8.21. The creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, if we don't have a solid definition of glory, and as you look at that, can you picture what it means? If we don't have a solid definition, we can probably take out those three words of the glory and just read it this way. The creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the children of God. A couple of months ago, I would not have seen any difference between those two readings. We get a vague idea from that verse that glory is a good thing, but just a vague idea. The next verse, one of my favorites, 2 Corinthians 3.18. This verse has the word glory three times. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord to the Spirit. That sounds awesome, doesn't it? And it is. But how do we behold the glory? Would you be able, if someone asks you, to tell them, here's how you can behold the glory? I think some of you could. Um, I hope everyone will be able to in a few minutes. The last one of this set of four is First Thessalonians 2.12, where it says, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, this verse says something that has really captured Dorman's attention recently. Have you noticed he's been telling us about God calling? Uh, In that verse where it has the word calling twice, he's, he's spoken to us quite a bit about that. But we see in this verse, he calls us not only into his kingdom but into His glory. Man, I wish I knew what that meant. (laughs) Wouldn't it be nice to have a working definition that would really sharpen the focus of these verses? Well, before I move into the second version of the God story, let's recall what A.W. Tozer said. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. If nothing else, I hope it will be clear by the end of the message this morning that what we think about God certainly affects our understanding of glory. Now, the Apostle John, 
wrote his gospel many years after the other three gospels had been finished. In fact, John wrote his gospel nearly 100 years after the birth of Jesus. Isn't that amazing to think about? John was very young, probably a young teenager in the biblical accounts, and lived till 95 A.D. or so. So by the time that John wrote his gospel, a lot of years had passed, and he had begun to see a lot of error creeping in to the young church. In fact, a lot of people, I believe, with many, that uh, 1 John chapter 1, where we have 1 John 1, 9 about confessing our sins, that is probably written to unbelievers, and it's also written as a, to counteract the heresy of the Gnostics, a group of people who uh, were gaining a lot of prominence at that time. So just to say, by the time John wrote his gospel, he had begun to see that a lot of people were having wrong thoughts about God. Well, A.W. Tozer thought that having correct thoughts about God was so important that he addressed it in the first sentence of his book. Well, guess what? The Apostle John thought having correct thoughts was so important, he addressed it in the first sentence of his book, the Gospel of John. You remember what he wrote? 1 John starts off like this, in the beginning... Well, the Jews of that day must have thought, oh, beginning. We know all about the beginning. Our scriptures start that way too. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, here's what John wrote. In the beginning was the Word. And the word, word there is a reference to Jesus. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. We could say it this way. In the beginning was Jesus and Jesus was with God. And Jesus was God. Well, that verse tells us all about witness. It's all about witness relationship. This relationship between the Father and the Son. And we get from other scriptures that the Spirit is part of that, of course, as well. Jesus was with God in the beginning. Here's a little secret. No extra charge for this. Genesis 1.1 is also about relationship. When that verse says God created, the word God is plural. We don't see it translated God's, but it's plural. But the verb created is singular. So uh, kind of a rough translation, but it might be somewhat accurate, would be in the beginning, God's, He created the heavens and the earth. There's a mixture of singular and plural. And just a few verses later, we see God saying, let us make man in our own image. So we see this relationship right from the beginning and really even before the beginning. Our English translations tell us Jesus was with God in the beginning. Do we see a problem here? There's no with. There's just one chair in this view. The relationship is not considered when thinking about God from that perspective. So what do we need? We need three chairs. And if you'll 
give me just a moment here. I'm going to set these three chairs up side by side. I'll let you decide which one would represent the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So there they are, side by side. John 1, 1, Jesus was with God in the beginning. The Trinity, they were together. Would you say that this is an accurate or an adequate portrayal of them being with each other? According to our English translations, yes. Let me try this one. changing the configuration so the three chairs are back-to-back in a tight triangle facing away from each other. They're still with, aren't they? The problem is John wrote his text in Greek and the word he used for with is this. The Greek word is pros, and it means face-to-face. It really means a lot more than that, but for our our visual imagery, face-to-face is about as close as we can get. It also carries with it the connotation of toward, always moving toward the other. It's a powerful, powerful picture. So, in the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was face to face with God. And Jesus was God. Now we can't really visualize that. How are you face to face with someone that you are? Well, that brings up the problem with trying to show this with physical things. With the one chair over here, it's easy for us to lose sight of the fact that it's three. If we go over here to the three it's easy to lose sight of the fact that the three are really one. We can't explain that. I don't know of anything this side of heaven that will help us really picture that. But with this idea in mind, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been an eternal one in fellowship that we cannot even imagine... With that in mind, let's go back to our questions. Before anything or anyone was created, did that triune, three-in-one God love? We can't even imagine. We cannot even imagine the love inside that circle of fellowship that has gone on for all eternity and will continue There's no loneliness in that circle of fellowship. There's no fear. There's no disagreement because they're one. There's no argument. There's no condemnation. Just love and joy being in each other's presence. Is this God a giving God? Oh, yes. This love is self-giving love. Self-giving defines how God is. 
Love is not something they have to remember to do. Love is who they are. Love is who he is. A struggle with the words. Spontaneous, self-giving love erupts from the Father to the Son and the Spirit, from the Son to the Father and the Spirit, from the Spirit to the Father and the Son. So which version of God's story is closer to the truth? And which one is closer, perhaps, to what you have believed? Well, this description of God opens up the possibility of a new definition of glory. It's the one I've been so looking forward to sharing with you. This incredible relationship depicted right here, the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is God's glory. The relationship is the glory. No other so-called God even comes close to that. This is not something man could make up. In the message that our friend Paul Higley brought a couple of weeks ago and in the message that Dorman brought last week, both of them quoted quite a bit from the high priestly prayer of Jesus that we find in John 17. Jesus mentions glory several times in that prayer. Here's one example. In John 17, 22, Jesus told his Father, The glory which you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. If we take our new definition and plug it into that verse, we see that we need a fourth chair. This chair has your name on it. And it's not over here. It's not even right here. It's right here. When you read in the Bible that we have been glorified, this is what it's talking about. You're right there in the midst of that relationship. You see, the glory of the gospel is not only that you can invite Jesus into your heart. The real glory of the gospel is primarily that the Father, Son, and Spirit have already brought you in to their relationship, to their relationship. Do you think we might see those four scriptures a little differently now? Let's go back and look at them. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is sin? At its heart, it's the failure to receive that. It's the failure to receive that. That is what awaited Adam and Eve, but they chose to go their own way outside the circle. So sin is a failure to receive and to live and to thrive in the midst 
of that relationship of love and the life that we've been called into. Sin can take on many forms, but at its core, it's a failure to abide and rest in that loving relationship. Let's go to Romans 8.21. The creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. A few minutes ago I said we could take those three words out of the glory and it wouldn't change anything. But now you see what a difference it makes. I hope that with this definition of glory represented by those four chairs that you can see that it's this glory, this relationship which brings freedom. That's what brings freedom. Take the glory out, (laughs) it's not there. This is one verse where translation really matters. Some of the translations, uh, versions, do not bring out the word glory as glory into English, unfortunately. Nor do they bring out, some of them that even use the word glory, they don't bring out the fact that it's the glory, it's the relationship that is giving birth to the freedom. It's in, in Greek, they call it the genitive case. Genitive, like generation, it's like a giving birth. It's the glory giving birth to the freedom. Let's try 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unfailed face, beholding as in a mirror. Beholding as in a mirror. The glory of the Lord are being transformed into that very same image. How could we not, sitting face to face with our triune God, just as from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit, how do we behold the glory? First of all, we have to receive the truth of God's Word. We just have to receive it. Once we believe it, we behold it by simply meditating on what is already true. This is not the same thing as wishing it were true, nor is it hoping that it will be true if we can just work up enough faith. It's already true. The truth is, you are already in that fellowship. There's no condemnation there. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit look on you and say, you are my beloved child in whom I am so very pleased. Do we stumble? Do we fall? Yes, like a child learning to walk. If a toddler just taking the first step, when they fall, we don't slap them and lose fellowship with them, say, well, until you learn to walk right. No, that's not how we treat a child. That's not how our gracious God treats us. Now, it would be natural to ask, why only four chairs? If all believers are involved, wouldn't it take hundreds of millions or billions of chairs? And my answer is yes and no. Let me tell you why I say no. Think about the fact that God is infinite. He's not like our mom was when we were growing up where 
Mom had other things occupying her attention, and we're, you know how little kids are, mommy, mommy, you know, look at me, look at me type things. No, it's not that at all with God. God is infinite. You have, think about this, you have his undivided attention 24-7, and you have had it since eternity passed, and you will have it throughout all eternity. So in that sense, one chair is enough. Each of us have our own chair in the midst of the circle of their fellowship. We have the undivided attention of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But in a way, yes, we do need more chairs. We're all part of one body. We're all part of the body of, the, of Christ, with Christ as the head. So in that sense, uh, it might take many chairs, but even then I could argue, well, it's one body, <laughs> so one chair for the body of Christ. We'll talk about this a little more next Sunday, but in the meantime, could I encourage you to dig into the New Testament a little, particularly Paul's writings are really good, Gospel of John also. Uh, just pick your favorite uh, epistle of Paul, for example. And every time you come across the word glory, try substituting in this definition of this glorious, loving relationship with the triune God. Sometimes it won't work. It may be the glory of the Lord shown round about them, and that's more of a physical appearance. But often I think you will start to see some new insights and sharper focus. So whenever you see the word glory, be thinking about the eternal loving relationship between the Father, Son, and Spirit. And think about how they have not only welcomed you into that relationship, they long for you to find your joy in the participation with them. After all, God's been thinking about this exact relationship with you, you individually as well as all of us since before the creation of the world. Could I ask you to close your eyes just for a moment so won't be too distracted? Imagine yourself face to face in a circle of love in the midst of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. You know what pure worship is? Pure worship is the act of humbling yourself before God and His Word, even if your brain is telling you, this is too good to be true. Believe it. He said it. Worship is believing what He says about you and what He says about this relationship He's called you into. Let's worship Him now by praying this prayer together. Abba Father, I am overwhelmed that you've called me into this relationship of love and joy that you have always shared with your Son and your Holy Spirit. I am humbled beyond words that you have given yourself 
to me in this way. Right now, Father, I give you my full permission to do in me whatever is necessary to bring me into the fullness of this great gift. I bless your holy name. Amen. Devil, look out. Look out. Well, please stand. Do you believe the Lord has blessed you? And that He is keeping you? Do you believe He's making His face shine upon you? And are you finding peace in what He has done? Go in peace and be blessed and be a blessing. Amen.